You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. with me. Oh Lord, that is our prayer, that we need to see you, we need to hear you, we need to know you, and so I pray, oh Lord, that you speak to us through your words of life. We pray that you send your spirit to give us ears to hear, and I pray, oh God, knowing that all I have to give you this morning is weakness. And so I pray for your grace to be sufficient and your power to be perfected, that you alone may receive the glory. Speak, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, good morning. It's a joy to be with you this morning. My name is Devin. I get the joy of serving as one of the pastors here at River City. Now this morning we are jumping back into our sermon series through the Gospel of Luke, and Lord willing, we'll have this week and then next week we'll go through the Gospel of Luke, and then beginning the first Sunday in June, we will begin our summer psalm series, summer series in the Psalms, say that ten times fast, summer series in the Psalms, we'll begin that uh, the first Sunday in June. With that said, today we are in Luke chapter 15. So if you have your copy of God's Word, you can turn there with me. Luke 15, if you do not have a Bible, our strike team will come down. Um, You can raise your hand and they'll hand one out to you. Uh, Luke 15 is on page 510 of the Bibles that are being handed out. And as you're turning there, I'd like to give you a little background information about this passage Now, when I'm trying to understand the background of a passage, there are three main things that I'm looking for. I'm looking for the Old Testament context. I'm looking for the context of the book that I'm studying. In this case, it's the Gospel of Luke. And the third thing that I'm looking for is the immediate context of the passage. Now, for our purposes this morning, the Old Testament context is from Ezekiel 34, which Connie just read for us. And in that passage, as we just saw... In the first part, the Lord God rebuked the elders of Israel because they cared more about themselves than they did the people of God. And therefore, the people of God were left to fend for themselves. They became hungry, they were broken, and as the passage says, they were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or to seek for them. And then in the second half of that passage, as we just read, There's this amazing promise that the Lord God himself, God himself is going to come down to search for and to seek his people. God himself is going to rescue his scattered sheep and he's going to bring them home. And we saw that God himself will judge the elders of Israel. Now the second piece of background information that I look for is information about the book that I'm studying, in this case the Gospel of Luke. Now for our purposes... It's important to note that this gospel has a special focus on the outcasts of the time. These would be the tax collectors, 
sinners, Gentiles, even women. And what we see throughout this book is that God, through Jesus, delights and treasures the outcast. God delights in the outcast. And as we've seen before, the main theme of this gospel is that Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. Now, the third piece of background information that I look for in trying to understand a passage is the immediate context. In our cases, verses 1 through 2 in chapter 15 tells us the context of what we need to know. It sets the stage for what Jesus is about to teach us. And in that context, we have tax collectors and sinners, the outcasts, were drawing near to Jesus. And then the Pharisees and the scribes, who were the spiritual leaders at the time, were grumbling about Jesus. And so, in other words, the tax collectors and sinners, the outcasts, were turning towards Jesus, and the spiritual leaders were turning away from Jesus. Now, that was a lot of background information, but just keep all of that in mind because it'll pop up as we're reading the passage together. So let's look at this passage, Luke 15, verses 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that is Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins... If she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, <clears throat> there, is <clears throat> there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is God's holy word for us this morning. He who has ears, let him hear. We live in a culture that is obsessed with our own happiness. Happiness is often, now not always, but happiness is often the major deciding factor when it comes to choosing what job we have, to choosing where we want to live, to choosing what we want to do in our free time, even sometimes choosing who we want to marry. The pursuit of happiness is so important to us that it's literally written in the Declaration of Independence. We're all looking for happiness in some way, shape, or form. If only we could get this thing or do that thing or go on this trip or if only we could get married, then we would be happy. We spend a lot of time thinking about and pursuing what makes us happy. How much time do you spend thinking about and pursuing your own happiness? Now, in contrast to that, 
how much time do you spend thinking about what makes God happy? We spend so much time focusing on our own pursuit of happiness that we hardly ever consider what brings God joy. And so my goal this morning is for us to take our focus off of ourselves just for a few minutes so that we can focus on God and so that we can ask this question. What brings God joy? What brings God joy? Now, there are many biblical answers that you could give to that question, but our passage gives us one, and that's what I want to focus on this morning, and that is repentance brings God joy. Repentance brings God joy. And there are two reasons our passage teaches us that this is true. And these are my two points this morning. So first, repentance brings God joy because God hates self-righteousness. That's coming from verses 3 through 7. And second, repentance brings God joy because God delights in his people. Verses 8 through 10. So repentance brings God joy because God hates self-righteousness and because God delights in his people. So first point this morning. Repentance brings God joy because God hates self-righteousness from verses 3 through 7. As we saw in verses 1 to 2, that sets the stage for this passage. And we see there that the tax collectors and the sinners, the outcasts, were drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, who again were the spiritual leaders of the time, were grumbling about Jesus. And in response to this grumbling, Jesus tells the following three parables. Now, Lord willing, today we're going to focus on the first two, and then next week, Pastor Jake is going to come and teach on the parable of the prodigal son. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to describe the details of the parable, and then when we get to the end of the parable in verse 7, we're going to describe the points of the parable, which is, that's how Jesus does it, so I'm going to follow him. Now, Jesus begins with this question in verse 3. Excuse me, verse 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Now, this is clearly a rhetorical question. And the answer is undeniably that any shepherd who cares anything about his sheep, of course he's going to go after that lost one. Of course he will, because that sheep is precious to him. And after searching until he finds his sheep, the, passage, or the parable says that the shepherd takes the sheep and lays it on his shoulders. Now, by way of illustration, um, my one-year-old son let me borrow this this morning. So in the parable, they would take the sheep and they would lay it right on his shoulders like this. Now, you can imagine that the sheep would actually be just slightly bigger than this. (laughs) But the point that he's making is that this is a tender way of carrying the sheep home versus like if you had to tie it with a rope and you were just dragging it home. On top of that, if the shepherd was carrying the sheep like this, the shepherd would make sure that that sheep is going to make it home. In other words, once the shepherd finds the sheep, that sheep is for sure going to make it home. And on top of that, when the shepherd finds his sheep, he lays it on his shoulders, and the parable says that the shepherd went home rejoicing. 
Finding his lost sheep brought this shepherd true and deep joy. So much joy that when he gets home, he calls his friends and his neighbors together and he says, come rejoice with me because what was lost has been found. Come rejoice with me. His joy in finding his sheep just overflowed into sharing it with others. He couldn't help but share this joy with his friends and his neighbors. Now just as a major side point here, This is the biblical principle of rejoicing with those who rejoice. And it teaches us that we need to think about joy as more than an individual pursuit. We need to think about joy as more than an individual pursuit. Because biblically speaking, we can have true joy when others are rejoicing. And if we think about joy in this way, we have many reasons to rejoice even right here at River City. Even over three Bible translations being translated into people, into people groups' languages. We can rejoice with that. And on top of that, if we're not rejoicing with those who rejoice, we're not only robbing ourselves of joy, but we're robbing that person who is rejoicing of joy as well. That was just a free point. That's just a free side point. So this is the first parable that Jesus teaches in this passage. And then if you look at verse 7, Jesus tells us the point of the parable. He says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, there are two main points to this parable, and they correspond to the two groups of people that Jesus is talking to. And again, remember, we've got the tax collectors and the sinners, and then you have the spiritual leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes. So we're going to look at how Jesus is responding to both of them in turn. So first, let's look at the tax collectors and the sinners. Clearly, the tax collectors and sinners are represented by the one person who repents in this passage. Now, real quickly, repentance is a simple definition is turning away from your sin and turning towards God. Now, I'm going to talk more about repentance when we get to to verse 2. And Jesus says here that there will be joy in heaven when one sinner repents. Now, heaven can either refer to the dwelling place of God, where God is right now, or sometimes it's used to refer to God himself. And even in Luke 15, when we get to the parable of the prodigal son, He uses heaven to refer to God himself. Now, however it's being used, there is joy in heaven because here we see the heart of God. And we see the length to which God has gone to go after his lost sheep. He sent his true shepherd to the earth. And this, of course, is Jesus Christ. And if you had to ask me to pinpoint an exegetical main point for this parable... I would say that it is this, that Jesus is boldly proclaiming that he is the Lord God who has promised to come and to seek his sheep. He is the one who is prophesied about in Ezekiel 34. In other words, this passage is about Jesus. This passage is about Jesus who is the Lord God incarnate who has come to seek and to save his lost sheep. So let us, just for a few moments, 
take our focus off of ourselves and let's focus in on Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Lord God who not only reveals who God is for us, but reveals the heart that God has for his lost sheep. And he is the fulfillment of the prophecies promised in Ezekiel 34 in the second half of that passage. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, has come to search for and to seek his lost sheep. He has come to rescue his sheep from all of the places that they have been scattered. He has come to bring them out from the far countries in order to bring them home. He has come to lead his sheep beside still waters and to make them lie down in green pastures. Jesus Christ is God who has come to seek and to save the lost. But Jesus didn't just leave 99 sheep in the open country to find the lost. He left equality with God. He gave up the privileges of being the king in order to become a servant and be born as a man. He gave up the lavish riches of heaven to live in a sin-infected wasteland. The king entered a fallen world full of disease and death in order to serve and to save his people. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And on the cross, he bore the full wrath of God that the sheep of God deserve. He was stricken. He was forsaken. He was abandoned by God the Father. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep because all we, like sheep, have gone astray and we have turned each one to our own ways. But the Lord has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. In Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that Jesus did all of this for the joy that was set before him. Joy? What joy? The joy of seeking and saving his sheep. The joy of finding his sheep and laying them on his shoulders and carrying them all the way home. The joy of seeing his sheep come to repentance. The joy of receiving sinners and eating with them. The joy of one day celebrating that great wedding feast of the Lamb. What great joy. And the joy of Jesus bringing home his sheep overflows into sharing that joy with all of heaven. Can you imagine the heavenly celebration and party that takes place when one sinner repents? I like, my brain can't even fathom it, but I imagine it to be something like the crowd erupting after their team scores the Super Bowl winning touchdown. If you can imagine something like that and times it by infinity, that's the party that happens in heaven when one sinner repents. Now, I want you to think about the moment that you repented and put your faith in Christ. Now, I know we all have different stories. Some of you don't remember because you're like, I've always believed but you still were saved. I want you to think about that moment that you were saved, and then I want you to think about the party and the celebration and the joy that happened in heaven, that moment you were saved. Now for me, I got saved, I remember it very clearly, November 10th, 2010. And when I repented of my sins and put my faith in Christ, 
from my perspective, it was like the weight of the world was lifted off my shoulders. But I've never really thought about it. In that moment, not only was the weight of the world lifted off my shoulders, but there was joy in heaven. There was a party. There is joy in heaven when one sinner repents. Or let me say that in a little bit of a different way. Repentance brings God joy. Repentance brings God joy. Now the second group of people that Jesus is addressing in this parable is the Pharisees and the scribes. Let's look again at verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. (coughs) Jesus is clearly saying that the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance are the Pharisees and the scribes. He's saying that the Pharisees and the scribes, who again are the spiritual leaders of the day, they are self-righteous. Now what that means is that they believe that they are righteous in their own eyes. They believe that they have perfectly obeyed God's God's law. They believe even that they obeyed more than Jesus. This is why they were grumbling about them. Uh, Excuse me, about him. They were grumbling about Jesus. They didn't need to repent. Why would someone who thinks they're righteous need to repent? They don't. And God hates self-righteousness. Because ultimately, the person who believes that they are self-righteous places themselves, or at least they try to, place themselves in the place of God. God hates self-righteousness. We see this in that this parable is a very strong rebuke against the Pharisees and the scribes, especially when you consider the connection to Ezekiel 34. Jesus is saying that the Pharisees and the scribes are the evil shepherds of Ezekiel 34. If you remember when we were looking at that. They are the ones who are so concerned about themselves that they didn't care about the people of God. In fact, these evil shepherds, God says in Ezekiel 34, these evil shepherds and their self-righteous concern are the reason that the sheep were scattered in the first place. They were more concerned with their self-righteousness than the flock of God. And God hates self-righteousness And this is why God tells them in Ezekiel 34.10, says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and the scribes that God is against them. Is there anything more scary than God being against you? God is against them, and they will have to give an account for their self-righteous concern. Because God hates self-righteousness. Now, as I was studying this, this needs to be, this, this is a strong warning for any spiritual leader. And specifically, as I'm thinking about this, this is a strong warning for us elders here at River City. We need to take this seriously, myself included, that we need to shepherd the flock of God that is among us the way that Christ has because we are leading as those who have to give an account to God. We need to repent of any self-righteousness so that we can lay down our lives for the sheep. 
No, God hates all self-righteousness, and so we all need to repent of self-righteousness. Don't misunderstand me there. But this is specifically talking about the leaders of God's people. Repentance of self-righteousness brings God joy because we are turning from ourselves and we are turning to God. Our repentance brings God joy because he hates self-righteousness. So by way of transition, let's go back to our main question. What brings God joy? Repentance brings God joy. First, because God hates self-righteousness. And second point this morning, repentance brings God joy because God delights in his people. Verses 8 through 10. The second parable that Jesus told in response to the grumbling of the Pharisees and the scribes is the parable of the lost coin. Now, it's been a few minutes since we've looked at it, so I'm going to read it again here, verses 8 through 9. You can look with me. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Now, just like last parable, I'm going to describe the details of the parable, and then at the end, when we get to verse 10, I'm going to describe the point of the parable. Now, this parable is about a woman, which in itself is significant, especially when you connect it with the parable that is told before it. These are definitely connected parables. If you look at verse 4, go back to verse 4, it says, What man of you? And then if you have that connected to verse 8, Or what woman of you? I believe the of you is implied here. And the point of this is that there seems to be women in this crowd. And Jesus is teaching them, which would have been unheard of for a rabbi to do. So if you remember the background to the Gospel of Luke, we learned that in the background of this book, God delights in the outcasts, and women were outcasts at this time. But Jesus is teaching them. In other words, Jesus delights in women. And I want to make the point that the Pharisees and the scribes probably hated that Jesus, were te- Jesus was teaching women. Now, the woman in this parable was apparently poor. She had 10 silver coins. Each coin was worth about a day's wage, and this is probably all that she had to her name. And so when she loses one coin, she's losing a day's worth of wage. Now, for us, we think about that, and most of us would be able to recover from if we lost one day's of wage. It would still hurt. We wouldn't want to go through it, we would probably be able to cover. But for her, she was losing 10% of everything that she owns. In other words, this coin that she lost is very, very precious to her. And because it is precious to her, she lights a lamp, she sweeps the house, trying to find it. Now this lamp would have been a small, oil-fueled, handheld lamp that would have given off Um, a light a little bit larger than a candle. And she would sweep her house because very poor homes during this time, they would have 
rough stone that had many crevices in it, and it was very common for coins to get lost in those crevices. In fact, this is so common that archaeologists today still are finding coins in these crevices. And they use these coins and they can date like when someone lived in that house. I find that fascinating, but that's just a side point. But what we know is that it's very common for coins to get lost in the crevices of these stones. And so she was taking a broom and she was sweeping, hoping that she could hear the rattling of the coin because this coin is very precious to her. This is how she's seeking diligently until she finds it. Now, with this background information, just like the first parable we looked at, Jesus begins by asking the woman a question. What woman wouldn't search diligently until she find, found her coin? And the answer is, of course she would. Of course this woman would search as hard and as diligently as she could to find this lost coin because it is very precious to her. And because this coin is very valuable to her, when she finds it, she goes and she calls her friends. She says, hey, friends, gather with me, rejoice with me, because what was lost has now been found. I found this coin. Let's party. Again, we see the importance of rejoicing with those who rejoice. The woman's joy in finding her coin overflowed into sharing that joy with others. Now when we get to verse 10, Jesus tells us the point of the parable. So look at verse 10 with me. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now the point is that the sinner who repents is the coin that has been lost and then found by God. And the sinner who repents is as precious to God as the coin is to this woman. And when sinners like you and me repent, there is joy before the angels of God. In other words, when we are found, God gathers his friends and his neighbors together, which are his angels. God gathers all the angels. He said, hey, angels in heaven, let's gather together. Let's celebrate. Rejoice with me because this lost sinner has been found. And again, we looked at this earlier, but I can't imagine the amazingness of that celebration. I can't imagine the joy in heaven. What joy? How amazing. Joy because a wayward sinner has come back to God. Joy because repentance brings God joy. So what does all of this mean for us? There are two main points of application that I want to bring out this morning. First, it means that Jesus did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so if you are here this morning, and you have not repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this is a call directly from God for you to repent You are a sinner, and you need to repent and put your faith in Christ. True repentance is seeing your sin for what it truly is as an outrage to the holiness of God. It's seeing your sin for what it is and then turning away from it. And faith is turning towards God, trusting and believing that Jesus Christ paid the penalty that I deserve 
for my sin on the cross. So repentance is faith. Repentance is turning away. Faith is turning to God. And if you are here this morning and haven't done that, this is a call from God to do that. Our son Milo, he's just about two years old. He's the one who let me borrow the sheep, so you're getting to know him this morning. Sometimes when he directly disobeys it, directly disobeys me, he knows it right away, and so then he just takes off and he starts running. And when he's running away, I say in a loving and yet firm voice, Milo, stop. Come back. And when he realizes and recognizes his sin for what it is, and when he realizes and recognizes my love for him as a father, he turns around and he runs back to me and I embrace him in my arms. My friends, Jesus Christ is looking at you in your sin and he says, stop, come back. And I pray that you are able to recognize and realize your sin for what it truly is. And I pray that you are able to recognize the love that God has for you in Christ Jesus. And I pray that you turn around and you come back to him. Have you turned from your sin and put your faith in Christ? If you have not, let me urge you for the sake of your soul to do so. To not leave here this morning without talking to somebody about all of this. Now, the second point of application is that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is a call to a lifestyle of repentance. Again, because Jesus did not come to call the righteous, but he came to call sinners to repentance. Because those who are well have no need of the physician, only those who are sick. And let me be clear, yes, We as believers, if we have repented and put our faith in Christ, we have been saved from the wrath of God. We have been saved from the sickness of our sin. But as we all know, we still struggle with it. And so we still need our physician. We still need repentance. And our repentance still brings God joy. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, which, if you haven't read it, we have free copies at the Connection Desk, so please grab one on your way out. But he uses this very helpful illustration. Quote, A compassionate doctor has traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease. He has his medical equipment flown in. He has correctly diagnose the problem, and the antibiotics are prepared and available. He is independently wealthy, and so he has no need of anyone to pay him back for his services. But as he seeks to provide care, the afflicted refuse. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal in their own way. Until finally, a few brave young men They go to the doctor to receive his treatment. And what does the doctor feel? Joy. His joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and for healing. It's the whole reason that he came. How much more if the disease are not strangers but his own family? 
so with us, and so with Christ. Christ does not get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. It's what he came to heal. Jesus went down into the horror of death and plunged out through the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of mercy and grace to us. That's the end of the quote. Our great physician receives joy when he cares for the sick. So joyfully receive the medicine of the physician. And what is that medicine? It's repentance. It's repentance. It brings God joy when we come to him again and again in repentance. Because repentance brings God joy. Now, how do we do this? How do we live a lifestyle of repentance practically? Now, if you've ever had me in a class or if I've been teaching, you've probably heard this a thousand times, and I'm totally okay with that. It looks like using the acronym CAR. And again, I got this from Heath Lampert in his book, Finally Free. This is one of the most significant things that I've learned in my life. just want to share it with you. So, how do we live a lifestyle of repentance? First, we, the C, is confess your sins. Confess your sins to God. You can be open and honest with him. You can share him with him all of your sin. He wants to hear from you. So first we confess our sins. The A is we affirm who we are in Christ. And this is so important because often what happens is we confess our sins and then we beat ourselves up because we sinned again. But no, we need to go back to Christ. We need to affirm who we are, that in Christ Jesus, we are his beloved children. That in Christ Jesus, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. That in Christ Jesus, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And you can go on and on with the promises of God. So we need to affirm who we are in Christ. And then lastly, we need to, R, request God's grace to change. And again, what happens is we confess our sin and then we try to live holy lives all on our own. We need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit so that we can live for God. And so we need to ask for his grace. God, help me to turn away from my sin. God, help me to obey you in this particular way. Send your spirit to soften my heart and turn me to you. So we confess our sins, we affirm who we are in Christ, and we request God's grace to change. And the beauty of all of this is that it is so (laughs) God-centered. All of these are completely dependent on God so that God alone gets the glory and so that God alone, as our great physician, gets the joy. Now, as a believer in Christ, this needs to be at least a daily thing. As a beloved sheep of God, repentance needs to be a lifestyle And this is why we need the gospel every single day. Not so that we have to get saved daily, but so that we can grow in Christ's likeness. Because the gospel not only saves us, it changes us. As believers, we need to live a lifestyle of repentance because repentance brings God joy. And I pray that God's joy is the motivating factor behind your lifestyle of repentance. Because bottom line, here's the thing. God 
doesn't just want you to repent. He wants you. Beloved, if you are in Christ, God wants you. He delights in you. You are as precious to him as the lost sheep is to the shepherd. You are as precious to him as the lost coin is to the woman. You are his sheep. He delights in you. This is why Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Because the lost, us, are precious to him. Repentance brings God joy because God delights in you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we humbly come before you and we repent for our lack of repentance. Forgive us for our sin, all of our sin. We affirm who we are in Christ Jesus, that you delight in us, and we pray for your grace that we may change, that we may live a holy life for your glory. And God, I pray that in all of this, that you help us to take our focus off of ourselves and onto you and to deeply and truly consider the question, what brings you joy? Thank you for teaching us in your word that repentance brings you joy. Thank you for the gift of repentance. And I pray that we bring you joy by repenting as a lifestyle. We thank you that you delight in us. We thank you to the lengths, for the lengths to which you have gone to seek and to save us. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you loved us first. In Christ's name, amen.